Now, in coming to chapter 14, here is a great elegy on death. And he says here in verse 1, Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. And there's nothing any truer than that. It means simply this, trouble is the common denominator of mankind. All of us have had trouble. And he says man's born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. We've seen that. Trouble is the language that the whole human family knows about. Every person knows about trouble. Now, Job here is speaking on the subject of death. Now, he knows that death is inevitable and that he must depart from this world. Now, he has a hope beyond the grave. Now, let's see that. He says, "...he cometh forth like a flower, and he's cut down, just like a flower. He fleeth also as a shadow." And continueth not. Just like a shadow appears, sun goes down, where does the shadow go? It's gone. And dost thou open thine eyes upon such a one, and bringest me into judgment with thee? I'm just a shadow down you. I'm like a flower that's been cut down. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. And that is a great truth, by the way. That's the reason today that I don't care who you are. You are a sinner, and you were born a sinner. David put it like this, "...in sin did my mother conceive me." And this is a great truth. You can't bring a clean thing out of an unclean. How could you be a sinless creature when you had a sinful father and a sinful mother? You can't get a clean thing out of an unclean thing. That's a law, by the way. Now, he says, seeing his days are determined, the number of his months with thee, thou hast appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. And Job is saying he feels himself as a human being that he's pretty well hemmed in. And by the way, you are pretty well hemmed in. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. What David mean? That when he came down to his deathbed? No. The very minute that you start out in life, you're starting out in a canyon where the shadow of death is on you. And you just keep going until it gets narrow and narrow until, my friend, that's it. You're always walking in the shadow of death. Someone has put it like this. The moment that gives us life begins to take it away from us. Now, listen to him. Verse 10. But man dieth, wasteth away. Yea, man giveth up the ghost. And where is he? Now, we're talking about this life. A man that's made a tremendous success down here, famous person, he's gone. Where is he? I mean, oh, he may have a few monuments around, a street or two named after him, but what good is that? What does that amount to? Now, he goes on, and we're beginning to break through, and you begin to see the real faith of this man. He says, if a man die, shall he live again? That's been a question, and a big question with man. He says, "...all the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come." And he knew that was coming. "...thou shalt call, I'll answer thee." Even in death, Job says, he's going to call me, and I'm going to answer him. "...thou wilt have a desire to the work of thine hands." In other words, God's not through with me. Death doesn't end it all. And you're going to hear him say before this is over... I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand in the last days upon the earth. And though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Oh, how tremendous that is, friends. And so, this is a great elegy here on death. Now, I want to move on down into chapter 15, because now we begin the second round. Eliphaz who spoke first, he's speaking again. Now, you remember, this man Eliphaz is the spiritualist. He's had a dream, and he's seen something, and he's really had an experience. And very candidly, I personally don't feel like all these testimonies today are too great a value, because it rests truth on experience. And first of all, we should have truth, which is the Word of God. And then experience should come out of that. Too often people want to hear a testimony. They don't want to hear the Word of God. 
experience may or may not rest upon the Word of God. And I've heard testimonies given by Christians, so-called at least. They've had a great experience. And it's no more scriptural. Well, it's just as much in line with the Sears and Roebuck catalog as it is with the Word of God. Now, the Word of God is the thing that is important. And so here we come back to the man. He's had an experience. And it's mighty hard to get by a fellow like that. Now, will you notice? Then answered Eliphaz the Temanite and said, Should a wise man utter vain knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? My, they hit each other hard, don't they? They're really slugging it out now by these intellectual forays that they're making at each other. In other words, he says, My Job, you certainly are windy. You are really just talking. And he says, Should he reason with unprofitable talk or with speeches wherewith he can do no good? You see, instead of helping Job, they're doing nothing in the world but attacking him and trying to break him down and make him confess. Now, when a man's in trouble, you don't treat him like this. Now he says, Yea, thou castest all fear, restrainest prayer before God, for thy mouth uttereth thine iniquity, and thou choosest the tongue of the crafty. Now, he really goes after Job here, as you can see. And listen to him at verse 7. Art thou the first man that was born? <laughs> That's a good one, friend. Or wast thou made before the hill? In other words, you speak as if you know something, Job. And by the way, Job is. Again, all of these men are working on a wrong premise, all of them. But they put Job in a pretty bad light. They've not comforted him at all. They've not let him see or bring him to the place where he could see that he is a man that has a great lack and a great need. And God is probably using this to bring him to that, and God is doing that. Now, in verse 10, "...with us are both the gray-headed and very aged men, much elder than thy father." Now, he says, we've got wisdom over on our side, and you don't have it, Job. That is his argument here. And verse 14, "...what is man that he should be clean, and he which is born of a woman that he should be righteous?" Now, Job is defending himself. Job is trying to say he's not guilty. But these men are working on the premise that Job has committed an awful, terrible sin, and he ought to bring it out in the open. Now, it goes on in verse 15, "...behold, he putteth no trust in his saints. Yea, the heavens are not clean in his sight." That's all true, by the way. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he died, he not only died to redeem, friends, you and me, but in his redemption... There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. It's going to come because he redeemed. The heavens are not clean in his sight. How much more abominable and filthy is man which drinketh iniquity like water. And that is a true statement. There's no question about that. Now, this man is saying things that are quite obvious. That is, men in that day who didn't have this false philosophy of life and a false psychology that man is a rather superior creature, and he's the product of evolution, and that if there's anything wrong with man, it's just because man has made a few mistakes, and his sin is really ignorance or it's selfishness. It's nothing that just couldn't be cured by rubbing a little salve on it. That is the assumption, you see. And these men are working actually... Therefore, from the wrong premise. Now, friends, we're listening to Job here answer Eliphaz for the second time. Eliphaz has come back, and what you have here is very much like a debate. You hear one side and another side. Now, actually, it should not have been that, because these men should have been comforters of Job. Instead of being comforters, they are debaters. They are attempting to beat him down. They're attempting to gain an intellectual victory over him. And believe me, they're not getting very far with that. I do not think that they got a victory over him. My feeling is that it was a standoff. When they go through now the second time, it's a standoff. And then a young man that's standing there, he picks up the argument 
And very candidly, I do not think that he goes as far as some folks seem to think that he does, because finally God will break in on the scene. And that was, of course, what Job needed, what Job wanted. And now we find this man, Eliphaz, has just played the same old record over again, as we saw. He's a dreamer. He's had a vision. He's a spiritualist, by the way. He's one that's got a little inside information no one else has, but he didn't get any advance information after his first speech. He just comes up with the same old thing. And in chapter 16 now, Job answers him, and I'm reading now at verse 1. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are ye all. Job is saying to them, you haven't said anything new to me. And this last speech certainly wasn't new. You haven't said anything that I haven't heard already. And you're miserable comforters. Now, these were friends of Job, and I'm confident they were his friends. But they ended up by being debaters. And what you have is just each man having a rebuttal now. And Job has his rebuttal each time to each man. Now, he goes on. Verse 3 says, "...shall vain words have an end, or what emboldeth thee that thou answerest." In other words... Job is saying, I thought you'd be ashamed to have said what you've just said. And they're vain words, that is, they're empty words. They do not meet the need. A great many sermons are like that. Unless the Spirit of God uses them, I don't care even how Bible-centered they are, unless God can use them, unless the Spirit of God is using them, it'll come to naught. It'll be a vain, empty thing. But there's a lot of preaching that's nothing in the world And there's a lot of singing. There are a lot of services today that are absolutely meaningless as far as any worship of God or expounding of the Word of God is concerned. And it all doesn't rest really upon the preacher. Sometimes the congregation, the listeners, can be responsible for the breakdown that takes place. But the interesting thing here is this man isn't even talking into the situation of Job at all. Now, Job continues. He says, I also could speak as you do. In other words, Job said, I could have given your little speech. If your soul were in my soul's stead, Job said, maybe I could have said the same thing. I could heap up words against you and shake mine head at you. Now, this is a tremendous thing. You know, that is the thing that Paul said to believers was this in order to counteract this type of thing. He says, Brethren, if a man, a Christian man, be overtaken in a fault, ye that are spiritual, restore such a one. Don't go and debate with him. Don't go and preach at him. Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. In other words, come to him from below. The picture that we have of Foot washing is the picture. Our Lord washed the feet of those that were his own here. He's doing that today. When you and I confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, he still washes feet, and he set us an example. If you're going to wash somebody's feet, you can't come from the top and look down at them and point your finger and begin to preach at them. You have to come up to them. And you come up to them in the place of a servant. And as a result, why, it's a little different than arguing with them. It's too bad these friends didn't come that way to Job. But they didn't. They're preaching at him. And he notices that. He said, why, if I was in your place, I could do what you were doing. I could shake my head at you, and I could heap up words against you. But listen to what he says now in verse 5. But I would strengthen you with my mouth, and the moving my lips would assuage your grief. He said, I could do what you're doing, but I would. I'd want to strengthen you. I'd want to comfort you. I'd want to really wash your feet. That would be the thing, if we bring it up to date, that they should have done. Now he says, though I speak, my grief is not assuaged, 
and though I forbear, what am I eased? In other words, you haven't helped me at all. But now he hath made me weary. Thou hast made desolate all my company. In other words, you've wasted my time. You haven't helped me. You've attempted to beat me down. And listen to what he says in verse 8. And thou hast filled me with wrinkles. That's the best I've ever heard. You've made an old man out of me. You've just filled me with wrinkles, which is a witness against me. And my leanness rising up in me beareth witness to my face. He tireth me in his wrath, who hateth me. He gnasheth upon me with his teeth. Mine enemies sharpen his eyes upon me. They have gaped upon me with their mouth. Now, these men are supposed to have been friends, but they treat him like an enemy. They have smitten me upon the cheek reproachfully. They have gathered themselves together against me. God hath delivered me to the ungodly. (laughs) These men are the same as the ungodly. And do you know today that Christians can be meaner to you than an unsaved person can at times? There's nothing meaner than a Christian when he's mean. And there's some of them that are mean, by the way. So Job just classifies his friends as ungodly. And very frankly, I don't think you could classify them at all. They think they're defending God. Now, Job says, I was at ease, but he hath broken me asunder. He hath also taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces and set me up for his mark. God has done this to me. He's permitted this to happen to me. Have you ever seen a dog pick up a rabbit or an animal by the nap of the neck and shake it? I've seen that many a time as a boy when I'd go hunting, when the dog would catch a rabbit. My, he'd shake him, start grabbing him by the neck. And Job apparently had seen that. Job says, God, it's just let that happen to me like that. He's shaken me. And he does that sometimes, friends. He says, his archers compass me round about. He cleaveth my reins asunder, and doth not spare. He poureth out my gall upon the ground. Now, gall is bitter. And that's what he's saying. All my bitterness is just poured out of me. He breaketh me with breach upon breach. He runneth upon me like a giant. He says that he's just been walking up and down upon me. He's made me a doormat, as it were. You couldn't have anything more vivid than this here. The language of the book of Job is something that great men of the past, especially writers of the past, novelists and poets and essayists, have read the book of Job again and again. Its language is superb. And I would recommend it to many of you today that it would become a part of you. Just read again and again the book of Job. The beauty of the language here is wonderful. Now, he says, I have sowed, I'm reading verse 15, sackcloth upon my skin and defile my horn in the dust. My face is foul with weeping, and on my eyelids is the shadow of death. Have you noticed how close Job was to death? He wished for it, and yet avoided it, and yet stood right on the threshold of death during all of this time. I think he felt that any moment that he might die of what had taken hold of him, what had happened to him. He's a sick man and a very sick man. Now, will you listen to it? He says, "...not for any injustice in mine hands, also my prayer is pure." Now, it's beginning to come out the thing that is in the heart and life of Job that needed to be dealt with. And I think probably I should suggest it again. I've suggested it before. You see, these friends have not been leading him to a place where he would judge himself. They actually ministered to a spirit of self-vindication. They put him on the defense. And the minute that he defended himself, he had to put God at a disadvantage. You know, you can't defend yourself and at the same time defend God. That's impossible to do. So many people think that if they justify themselves, 
That's all they need do. Well, Job justified himself instead of justifying God. And they condemned Job instead of leading him to condemn himself. That is the approach they should have made to him. And you know that the minute you begin to defend yourself, you get in the position which John very candidly says, if we say that we are without sins, we make God a liar. And that's what you do. You put God, you see, in the place of being blamed. You take him off of the position of being the judge, and you put him down as the one that is charged, the guilty one, the criminal, the one that you're bringing the charge against. And there's so many people sit in judgment on God. And that's what Job actually is doing. And he's justifying himself here, you see, why he says, not for any injustice in mine hands. And the minute he said that, he's saying, God's wrong in letting this happen to me. And he says, my prayer's pure. And my, how I've heard that too, also coming from Christians. I doubt whether any of us pray a pure prayer. And that's the reason I always tell the Lord, I'm asking this in Jesus' name, because I don't think Vernon McGee would get through, my friend. I don't know about you. Job thought he would get through. Now, listen to him as he cries out here. And this is spectacular language. O earth, cover not thou my blood, and let my cry have no place. He says, if the blood of Abel cried out to God, well, certainly my blood ought to cry out to him. And he says, don't cover it up. And God won't cover any of it up. And he sees the blood of Christ, too, friends, especially when you reject it. Then verse 19, he says, Also now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and my record is on high. Now, the Bible gives all the way through the teaching that God keeps a record of us. And there are those that today like to poo-poo that. They say, now imagine God up there sitting at a desk keeping books. Who said he was keeping books? God doesn't have to do it. If man can make a little machine today called a computer, and I want to say to you, those things frighten me because they're smarter than we are, and you can't talk back to them. I had trouble with a credit card organization because they had overcharged me, and I would just send in the amount that I owed. And I would say, check your record. And it'd come back and they'd say that we're going to cancel your car. And it's the old computer talking to me. And the computer couldn't think its way through. But I want to say this. That computer had registered everything and apparently no human being was even near it because there was no brain connected with the answers they gave me. And I just wondered who in the world operates those machines. Well, anyway, may I say to you, if man can make a little machine like that. How do you think God does? <laughs> do you think maybe he could make a machine that keep your record? And maybe he wouldn't have to sit down and write up a lot of things in books. And maybe he could get some helpers to run his computers. Now, if man can make a computer, God can make a computer. And I think God can make a better computer. And I'm of the opinion that everything you've ever said, everything you've ever done, is recorded, my friend. And I don't care who you are, and I don't know about you, but I want to say to you, I don't want to see that record he's made of me. And I'm very happy that some of it's blotted out under the blood. <laughs> oh, thank God for that. Now, will you notice, he says, My friends scorn me, but mine eye poureth out tears unto God. Verse 20. Now, that's the picture of Job as he sits there upon that desolate Dump, if you please, the city dump. You see him sitting there. Tears are streaming down his eyes. And his friends are standing around looking at him in scorn, as if he's a hypocrite, as if he's a liar. And they don't know him. And they don't know God. And they don't know themselves. And listen to him now as he cries out, Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleadeth for his neighbor. And I don't know about you, but... I have an intercessor. I have an advocate. I have an attorney that represents me before God. 
And everything's been taken care of, friends. There's one that pleads for a man before God. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And he'd like to be your advocate if he isn't already. Now, in chapter 17, listen to him as he speaks here. This is Job now. He says, my breath is corrupt. He knew about halitosis, bad breath. And apparently he couldn't get any of these modern mouthwashes in that day. But it means he's sick, friends. My breath is corrupt. My days are extinct. The graves are ready for me. He said, I've got one foot in the grave and the other in the banana peeling. I'm just ready to depart from this life. Are there not mockers with me? And doth not mine eye continue in their provocation? He says, here I am, ready to die. And there you are standing around mocking me. What a picture it is. These men who've come to comfort him, they're now debating with him and actually now condemning him. I tell you, you can be a hard-boiled Christian, friends, and not be very helpful to the poor sinners in this world today. Oh, there are time for harsh words. God will be very harsh with Job, but God's going to comfort. God's going to help him, and God's going to restore him. Oh, that you and I today might see that he is a God of judgment, but he's a God of mercy, and he's a God of grace. Now, listen to him here. He says, lay down now, put me in surety with thee. Who is he that will strike hands with me? He says, let's shake hands. At least shake hands with me. For thou hast hid their heart from understanding, therefore shalt thou not exalt them. He that speaketh flattery to his friends, even the eyes of his children shall fail. He says, I don't want to be flattered. I don't want to be buttered up. He had been in other days. And he goes on in this vein down to verse 13. He says, if I wait, the grave is mine house. I have made my bed in the darkness. Actually, Job felt that that dump heap outside the city was his deathbed. He never expected to leave that alive. He said, I've said to corruption, thou art my father, to the worm, thou art my mother, my sister. In other words, you're closer to me than those that brought me into the world because I'm now ready to return back to the dust. And where is now my hope? As for my hope, who shall see it? They shall go down to the bars of the pit when I rest together is in the dust. And he's speaking of that old body of his that is so weary. Now, friends, we come to this 18th chapter of the book of Job. And here is where we get this second man, Bildad. This is the second one to speak, and this is his second time around. You see, we're getting rebuttal now. And so far, there's been nothing new added. We had first Eliphaz, and he certainly didn't add anything new. He played the same record. And now Bildad, he comes on with another string of epigrams and pious platitudes and sick cliches. But nevertheless, some of them are good, but they're not applicable to the case of Job. And the thing that he says to him in a rather nice way, how long will it be? Are you making an end of words? He says, why don't you shut up and start listening? And then he says, if you'll do that and start listening, afterwards we'll speak. Well, of course, his friends have been doing a good job of speaking also. Now listen to him as he begins. Then answered Bildad the Shuhite and said, How long will it be ere ye make an end of words? Mark, and afterwards we will speak. And you have the feeling here that all of them could have refrained from talking and been listening, but they'd have to listen to the voice of God. And they are not prepared for that at this time. And God is preparing Job to hear his voice. Now, he begins to put these little proverbs together one after another. Wherefore, are we counted as beasts and reputed vile in your sight. Why do you look with contempt upon us? Well, the answer to that, of course, is obvious. That's the way they've been looking at Job. And this has just been a standoff. 
And they've been, I think, glaring at each other all this time. Those who came as friends are no longer his friends. And he then begins this line of platitudes now. He says, He tareth himself in his anger. Shall the earth be forsaken for thee, and shall the rock be removed out of his place? What he's saying to this man is, do you think God's going to run this universe just to suit you? Because, you see, this man was a traditionalist, and he rests everything on the past, and anything that was true in the past, it's good enough for today. That is the method that he uses. In other words, Job, cannot you show some sense so that we may come to an understanding here? Do you think that your contempt for us as incompetent, are your rage at the divine dealings going to release you now from the trap that you're in? Because listen to him now. Yea, the light of the wicked shall be put out, and the spark of his fire shall not shine. And nothing truer could be spoken than that. But that's not quite accurate to say that to Job, by the way. The light shall be dark in his tabernacle, and his candles shall be put out with him. The steps of his strength shall be straightened, and his own counsel shall cast him down. Now, notice, he's cast into a net by his own feet, and he walketh upon a snare. What he's saying to him, Job, you've been caught in a net like a fish. And it's not because we've done anything. We are supposed to be here to help you, and you don't listen to us. And you're in that position, and he comes back to the old charge, that there's something in your life. You've just walked into a trap. And then he says in verse 9, The jinn shall take him by the heel, and the robber shall prevail against him. The jinn means the trap. The trap will take him. You've been caught like a bear in a trap because you've been fooling around with the bait or you wouldn't have been caught. You see, he gives these little pious platitudes and writes Q-E-D after each one of them. That is, this is something that's proven, like a geometry problem. When you take all the steps, you come to a conclusion. And when you come to the conclusion, that's it. But life is not quite like that. And you can get some wrong premises. If your premises are accurate, of course, you can come up with a good deduction. But if all your premises are wrong, why, you see, in a geometric problem, if A equals 10 and you make it equal 15, you're going to have trouble with the answer, though you may use the right method. These men are putting down their formula, and they're coming up with the wrong premises to put in the formula. And each one of them does that. But he comes back and makes it a hard, fast rule that he's just walked into a trap, and it couldn't be otherwise. And then he goes on to say here, For he is sent into the net by his own feet, and he walketh on the meshes. And that is a little different translation, but it's exactly what he's saying here to Job. Then he goes on to tell him that disease shall waste the body of the wicked. And the fire of God's going to destroy his habitation, and his name shall be blotted out. His family shall perish, and he's going to have neither son nor grandson. And his desolation shall astonish future generations. And friends, that's true, but it's not applicable to Job at all. That is the thing that you can say something true that has no present application at all to an individual. And that's the reason that a great deal of so-called counseling today is dangerous. Many think that I have certain hang-ups. For instance, I go after psychologists, not individuals, but as a group I do. I think there are many fine Christian psychologists. I know some of them, and I'd recommend them. But very candidly, there are some of them that their premises are not accurate. And for that reason, they are not able to counsel. And these men were not able to counsel Job. The wicked are going to be judged. The wicked will have this happen to them. They'll be blotted out in our day. Look what happened to Hitler. Look what happened to Stalin. Look what's happened to other of the dictators 
of Khrushchev, for instance, died in ignominy by the same crowd that had elevated him to a high position. As they live, they die. And that's true. But you don't apply that to Job. He's not that kind of a man by any means. Now in verse 18, let me put in there, he shall be driven from light into darkness and chased out of the world. And that's quite a figurative expression of the wicked, but it's not applicable to Job at all. Now, he goes on to say that he's going to have neither son nor nephew among his people, nor any remaining in his dwellings. Well, a man likes to have a son or a daughter and grandchildren. It's something that you can be proud of. And sometimes the wicked seem to have more than anyone else. But the thing is true here that Job now, and it's a cruel thing to give him at this time because he doesn't have a child left. They've all been slain. But God's going to make it up to him, and we'll see that when we come to it. And verse 21, now the last verse of the 18th chapter, Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked, and this is the place of him that knoweth not God. In other words, he is depicting the wicked and the position of the wicked, the end of the wicked, and it looks like Job is at the end of the row. And he says, now this is the way it is, and does it fit you, Job? And it does, by the way. But you see, they cannot believe that the thing that's happening to Job could happen to him for any other reason than the reason they've suggested. They just can't believe that it cannot. And Job is going to say that to them now when he answers them. He's saying to them, can't you conceive it possible that God has entangled me in his net and he's left his action unexplained? That there must be an explanation for it, but your explanation may not be right. And then the mistake Job is beginning to make, as you can see, is this. He knows they are wrong. But their being wrong did not make him right. His attitude is wrong, too, here. He has a wrong conception of God also at this time, although light breaks in from time to time. Now, in this chapter 19, we're going to see the great faith of Job and listen to him as he begins. Then Job answered and said, "'How long will ye vex my soul?' and break me in pieces with words. You see, this is like some physical combat. It's like a football team when you hear a coach say, well, you know, they tore up our defense. They've been breaking Job up with words. They've been breaking down his defense. Now he says here, these ten times have ye reproached me, ye are not ashamed that ye make yourselves strange to me. And you see, the more they talked, the more alienated they became from Job. And they are not right, but neither is Job right. And Job thinks because they are wrong that that would make him right. But actually, it does not. Had Job's conscience and his life been opened in the presence of God, what position should he have taken? Well, let me make this suggestion. I think that he should not have replied to his friends at all. Now, so many people think they have to defend themselves. In the position that I've been in for years and on radio, a great many people think the gift of preaching, teaching is a wonderful gift. I do. I thank God for it. But may I be very frank and say to you, it's a dangerous gift to have because it puts you up where you can be shot at. And you can be criticized. And I have people that come to me from time to time and say, why don't you defend yourself? Why don't you write a little book and defend yourself? Well, I don't need to. To begin with, someone has put it like this. Your friends that know you don't need an explanation, and your enemies wouldn't believe it anyway. So I have found out that in time, things answer themselves. But very candidly, I don't think that you need to defend yourself 
in these cases at all. And my suggestion would be that Job should not have answered these friends at all. He should have just bowed in sweet submission. Now, somebody's going to say, you don't do that. No, I don't. I'm just telling Job what to do, friends. No, I don't do that. But I think that he should have just bowed to it and listened to him and then told him goodbye, showed him where the front gate was to the city dump and told him to leave. But you see, he was bent upon vindicating himself. And there's so many people that feel like they have to do that. I think of so many men that have let time adjudicate their case. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, was accused very cruelly. And he sought to defend himself. He didn't need to. Time has brought it out. And the late Dr. DeHaan, great man that he was, he was severely attacked when he was pastor of a church. And Dr. DeHaan, at that time, well, there have been those that sought to defend him. Well, Dr. DeHaan didn't need any defense because time is justified and has revealed the fact that those charges made against him were false indeed. Now, I personally think Job should have taken that position, that he should not have come out with this defense of himself. But listen to him. These ten times have ye reproached me. Ye are not ashamed that ye make yourselves strange to me. He's become an alien. Why didn't he just keep quiet? And he wouldn't have had ten messages from him. He doesn't see that, apparently. But he still has a great faith in God. And you notice him now as he moves on. He says, And be it indeed that I have erred, mine error remaineth with myself. In other words, he says, No one knows it but me, apparently, because you fellows can't point it out. And I don't know it. And he doesn't. Someone has said that the Lord didn't make us perfect, but he made us blind to our errors. Well, I don't think the Lord did that. But that is a true statement. We're not perfect, but we're most of us are blind to our faults. And so this man here is blind to a great many of his faults. Now, will you notice, he says, If indeed you will magnify yourselves against me and plead against me my reproach, know now that God hath overthrown me and hath compassed me with his net. And what he's saying to them is this, God has done this, and he hasn't given an explanation. And couldn't it be for some reason that he hasn't explained? But they're determined that their explanation, of course, is the right one. And he almost pleads with his friends here. He says, He hath fenced up my way that I cannot pass, and he hath set darkness in my paths. He has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. He hath destroyed me on every side, and I am gone, and mine hope hath he removed like a tree. He hath also kindled his wrath against me, and he counteth me unto him as one of his enemies. He says, Oh, God is mistreating me. It's true. And there must be an explanation for it. And it must be an explanation different from yours, because I know that God is letting this happen to me for a purpose but I don't know what the purpose is. And he goes on talking in that vein and finally comes up in verse 23. He says, Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book, that they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. And this man says here, I wish my life was written out and put in a book. And I'd be willing for my worst enemy, to ride it, and I'd go around with it around my neck like a necktie, and I'd just show it to everybody and say, look, this is what my worst enemy says about me, and he has to praise me. Now, would you want your worst enemy to be the one to write your biography? I'm not sure I want my best friend to. I have a couple of friends who want to write my biography, and I've discouraged them. Very frankly, I want to stand on God's books. I think it'll be more accurate, and I think it'll be lots worse there too, but it'll be accurate, and that's the important thing. And now listen to him. Now Job expresses 
is great faith. These men attempt to break him down. And this is actually the devil's subtle attempt. When he brings a man to a place where he is not humble before God, but he vindicates himself. But at the same time, the devil wanted to break him down to where he would defend himself, though he's hit rock bottom. But Job hasn't hit rock bottom, by the way. And these friends have not broken him down. He has a living, real faith in God. Here is one of the great statements of the Bible. And it's not just the statement that's great. It's great because the man who gave it is a sick man. And this man is ready to expire. He's lost everything. He's under the discipline of Almighty God. And he feels the lash upon his back. And yet he says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Don't tell me that you're going to go back now and pick up the words of Job at first when he was in the shock of all this trouble and he wanted to die and he spoke of death at least would get him away from his troubles. He's not talking about uh, soul sleep. I think that's obvious. He says, I know that within my flesh I'm going to see God. <laughs> He's not going to be asleep, by the way, that worms may destroy his body, but he's going to see God. This body of ours, friends, it's not going to go to sleep. It's going to be put right back in the earth. And the dead in Christ are put to sleep. The body is, but they go in their spirit to be with Christ immediately. And how wonderful that is. Now he cries out to them, having made this great statement, but ye would say, why persecute we him, seeing the root of the matters found in me? Be ye afraid of the sword? For wrath bringeth the punishments of the sword, that ye may know there is a judgment. He's saying to these men, don't you know that God will punish you for saying what you've said to me? Now the last man is going to speak to him in this round. This is the second round and the last of the second round. The third man, Zophar, will speak to him. Then we're going to have, of course, the third round, and it's going to be a pretty brief round, by the way. And this man, Zophar, won't even get in on the third round. It's over with before it gets to him. Because I think that we can't say that Job won, and we can't say Job lost. Can't say the friends won or they lost. It was a standoff. Now, you remember who Zophar is. He's the legalist. He says God works according to law and measure. And he asks what is known as the scientific mind. You've got a port and a test tube, and it'll always come out this way. Uh, you've got to look at it under the microscope, and you always find it works this way. He is the one that says that you can't change these things and never be changed. All things continue as they have from the foundation of the world. He knows nothing, actually, of the grace of God. And so he comes on, and he comes on strong. He is actually less impressive this time around than he was before. But he's more brutal and cruel than he was before. He's a hard slugger, and he's hitting hard because of the fact that he realizes that this may be his last time around. And for that reason, he's pouring out all that he's got to pour out, which is actually not very much. He actually introduces nothing new. He rests upon his seniority, and he resorts to the same legalism he used before. He'll hold of the theory that Job is a very wicked person because of the law that the wicked must be punished. And that's what he's going to talk about here. I'm reading chapter 20 now, verse 1. Then answered Zophar the Naamathite and said, Therefore do my thoughts cause me to answer. 
and for this I make haste. I have heard the check of my reproach, and the spirit of my understanding causeth me to answer. other words, he says he's capable of answering. He has the capability. Sounds like a politician running for office. Never heard of a man running for office that didn't tell you he was qualified. Fact of the matter is, he always said he's more qualified than his opponent. And he doesn't mind telling you that. And when a man says that, of course, I don't care who he is, he does lack a little modesty. Now, this man comes on like that. Now, will you listen to him? Because he's going to come on with this same type of an argument. And he says that he's going to repeat an age-established fact. And what is that? Well, here we are. Knowest thou not this of old, since man was placed upon the earth? Oh, here we come, friends. This is a scientific conclusion. He's poured it in the test tube of the past. And it's true that the triumphing of the wicked is short. Did you know that, by the way? And that that's an age-established fact? And the joy of the hypocrite, but for a moment? Well, may I say to you, it's owing to how long short is that we're talking about, and how long is a moment? What is the length of it? I've seen the wicked that have been holding on a long time, and the hypocrite. But finally, he does come to judgment. But Zophar may be stretching a point right here. He says, Though his excellence they mount up to the heavens, and his head reaching to the clouds. He's dramatic also. This language is tremendous in the book of Job, friends. All great writers, they have acquainted themselves with the book of Job. May not know much about the Bible, but they seem to have read Job. Yet he shall perish forever like his own dung. They which have seen him shall say, Where is he? Now, that is going to happen. Some of the young people say today, not only, Where is Hitler? But who is he? They don't recall him at all. And that first Kaiser, by the Kaiser Wilhelm, when I was just a little boy, I thought he was the devil incarnate, the way they talked about him. And he's gone. All of them are gone. But they had a long moment. They sure lived it up when they were down here. He shall fly away as a dream and shall not be found. Yea, he shall be chased away as a vision of the night. The eye also which saw him shall see him no more. Neither shall his place any more behold him. His children shall seek to please the poor, and his hands shall restore their goods. Now, you know that very candidly, man is the greatest failure in God's universe, as far as I can tell. And one of the explanations of it is, is the brevity of man. They tell about how old these rocks are, even these old rocks that came from the moon. Well, man hadn't been around that long. Man's a Johnny-come-lately. And, friends, if there's not an eternity ahead of us, man is the most colossal failure that God ever made. That's just one of the reasons, because of the brevity of the life of man. And that would be true of anyone except a child of God, someone... In fact, the late Dr. Bill Anderson in Dallas, Texas, he's a great preacher. He was a great inspiration to me as a student. He one day met one of his deacons on the street, and he always had come up with an unusual one. He said to him, called him by his first name, he says, you know, said, suppose when we get to heaven or get in God's presence, we find out this Christian life wasn't the life after all that we needed. Actually, that ended it all, to tell the truth. What would be your viewpoint? And this deacon looked him right straight in the eye, and he says, You know, Bill, if we get to heaven and find out that all this business of the Christian life was just nothing in the world but our own imagination, I'm going to say to the Lord, it was very much worthwhile. It was worth it all. But you see... Even then, there is a little tug at the heart of disappointment, if that is all. Why? Because we want eternity. God has set eternity in our hearts because it's there. 
and man's going to move on a little farther. But it is true that wickedness must be punished. Now, this man goes into so much here that I'd like to go into, but I feel like that would be better for us to move on, as actually Zophar really does not add anything new. And I think we can pretty much sum up what he's saying here. And if you'll notice, he's calling Job not only wicked, but a hypocrite. And he says that this individual, he may attain eminence, but that just simply means his fall is going to be greater. And he's suggesting that that's what's happened to Job, and that he's just going to be like fuel, which will be consumed. He's like an evil vision that'll disappear, and evil will touch everything. And even as a sweet morsel, he keeps it under his tongue, and it's going to turn to gall within him. And God is going to compel him to disgorge his unjustly amassed fortune and force him to make restitution to his victims. And although nothing could escape his greed, he's going to be reduced to poverty. And worst of all, God shall cast the fury of his wrath upon him, as he calls it here. And he speaks of it, a fire not blown, treated like that. In other words, he'll become a raging flame. And all of his prosperity will go up in flames. And there'll be no avenue of escape. And then he more or less sums this thing up by saying, This is the portion of a wicked man from God and the heritage appointed unto him by God. That's verse 29. Here in chapter 20, he sums it all up now. Now, that's a pretty bitter dose for a man in Job's condition to take. Now, listen to him. He comes on strong. He's still able to have a comeback. You feel like, though, that it'd be better if he didn't answer from now on. But he's ready to answer, and he's going to defend himself. And actually, what he's saying now here is... He's growing weary of their false charges. And he's now going to appeal to a higher court. And he has to agree the wicked will be punished. But he just has to say it. It doesn't apply to him at all. And it's not for him. And so he begins by saying, here, just give me a little attention. In other words, he says, listen to me and then you can mock on. But Job answered and said, Now, I'm reading verse 2 of chapter 21. Hear diligently my speech, and let this be your consolation. In other words, Job, in a sarcastic manner, is saying, I'm going to console you. He says, Suffer me that I may speak, and after that I've spoken, mock on. But let me get in my word. But, of course, Job has had plenty of words to say. As for me... Is my complaint to man? And if it were so, why should not my spirit be troubled? Now, he says, I'm not making my complaint to man. I'm appealing to God. Mark me and be astonished. Lay your hand upon your mouth. In other words, he's saying to them, shut up. Even when I remember I'm afraid and trembling take hold upon my flesh, wherefore do the wicked live? Become old. Yea, are mighty in power. Now he says, I want to say this to you, that wicked are not always cut off, but they sometimes attain old age, and their property remains intact, and their children are able to inherit it, and they are numerous. My, they've got an old flock of children, and they dance and are gay and they rejoice, and they're having a good time, they're living it up. And you may say their folly is going to be apparent, but you're mistaken. For like others, they go down to the grave. Their career was not an exclamation that said to God, Depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. And why should we, they ask insultingly. Well, will you notice now, let me read through here, because Job's got a very good argument going, as you can see. He says here, He says, Wherefore do the wicked live, become old, yea, are mighty in power? Their seed is established in their sight with them, and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, 
neither is the rod of God upon them. Their bull generateth and faileth not. Their cow calveth and casteth not a calf. Remember, Job was a rancher. He had a lot of cattle. And he says that they are prosperous cattlemen. And I can remember as a boy in West Texas, some of the biggest drunkards that were in the neighborhood were also the biggest ranchers in the neighborhood. And I still see those names today as being ranchers in West Texas. But the old boys that were there in that day, they're gone. And their sons have apparently fallen right along in their footsteps. And they're going to disappear also. But they do prosper. Job's calling attention to that. That disturbed David, by the way. It worried him a great deal. He said, well, I saw the wicked spreading himself like a green bay tree. But he did find out that finally God moves in in judgment. Now, he goes on, he says, they send forth their little ones like a flock, and their children dance. They take the timbrel and harp and rejoice the sound of the organ. They spend their days in wealth, and in a moment go down to the grave. Now, on a radio network like this, I don't want to call names, but I don't have to call names. Because think of the rich in this country today. Names that stand for money. In fact, their names spell money. And they're living it up. And they have no reputation for godliness. They've been godless. And we find that they are in politics. They are in high society. They don't seem to suffer as other people suffer at all. (laughs) May I say to you that? causes you to wonder, does it not? Well, Job is saying, the wicked do prosper. Then he goes on, Therefore they say unto God, Depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. These people are godless. That's verse 14, by the way. And then they go on, verse 15, What is the Almighty that we should serve him? That's what this crowd says. And what profit should we have if we pray unto him? What could he give us that we can't get for ourselves? Lo, their good is not in their hand. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. Job is saying, I don't belong in that class. I'm not the wicked. What you're saying, if it were true, would not apply to me. And it's not always true of the wicked. And he says, how oft is the candle of the wicked put out? And how oft cometh their destruction upon them? And... That is an exclamation point my Bible. I'm not sure what it should be questioned, but either way, Job is saying that the wicked, they don't seem to have any more problems than the average person has. And when it comes to time to die, they are as stubble before the wind and as chaff that the storm carrieth away. And death is no respecter of persons, knocks at their door too. And he says, God layeth up his iniquity for his children. He rewardeth him, and he shall know it. And he is saying this, that what they are saying, their Proverbs, not always true. But that doesn't mean God's not going to judge the wicked someday. As one time I heard a friend of mine say to a man that was drunk, he was apologizing for it when he found out we were preachers. And this friend of mine says, don't apologize. As you go ahead, you drink it up now, boy, because this is the only place you're going to get it. Where you're going, they don't serve it. So you get all you can right here. I don't blame you for it. And if I were the wicked, I'd live it up. I don't blame them for it. My friend, you better live it up because this is it. The wicked are going to be judged. And that's what Job is saying. And he is going to reward those that are his own. That is for sure as far as the word of God. Is concerned. Now that's what he's saying here. His eyes shall see his destruction. He shall drink of the wrath of the Almighty. Now Job was confident that God was yet to judge them. And the candle of the wicked is going to be put out. There be no question about that. And he concludes this by saying here in verse 30 that the wicked is reserved to the day of destruction. They shall be brought forth to the day of wrath. And that is true, but it may not be until the great white throne judgment. And God's going to permit it to 
live it up down here if that's what he wants. You see, God is gracious. God is long-suffering. And that's the reason Paul could say to the so-called people that thought they were upright. He said to them that God was going to judge those someday that come into his presence, and God is going to be gracious about it. And the goodness and the forbearance and the long-suffering of God ought to lead you to repentance. Very fact today that the rich are enjoying it in this country, and they really are, friends, let's face it. That jet set, they're down at Acapulco part of the time, and they're up in Massachusetts part of the time on the coast there, and then they are in Europe. My, they are really living it up. And God doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. And he isn't, but he's going to, you see. There is a time coming. The wicked is reserved to the day of destruction. That's something that's not being said much these days. And so that is the thing that Job now is saying in answer to Zophar. And may I say it's a good answer, but he's still justifying himself, you see. There's no thought here of repentance on the part of this man.